Hello, and welcome to the History of Philosophy in India by Janardan Ganeri and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at www.historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, Practice Makes Perfect, Patanjali's Yoga Sutra. If you enrolled in a yoga class, what would you expect to learn? Stretching techniques and better posture? an intense awareness of your body and your breath, an improved ability to focus and perhaps even the art of meditation. But not the power to levitate, read minds, or foresee the future. For that, you would presumably need to consult a Jedi master. The change of only one letter from yoga to Yoda would make all the difference. Or would it? Just open the foundational text of the grand tradition of yoga and page down to the third chapter. It promises that the adept yogin does indeed wield the magical powers just mentioned and other powers besides. Recall of previous lives, the ability to speak other languages, heightened senses, and supernatural stealth. This rather occult portion of the text is rarely highlighted in scholarly discussions of early yoga, perhaps because interpreters find it embarrassing or just irrelevant to the philosophical teaching of the sutras. But it should not be discounted. The talk of supernatural powers fits with the overall message of yoga, which is that we are capable of mastering and, ultimately transcending, nature itself. Like the other foundational texts we've looked at, the Yoga Sutra is written in a compressed and elliptical fashion, though the yoga master who wrote it has less trouble with conventional grammar than Master Yoda. In fact, the author in question shares the name of a famous grammarian, Patanjali, author of the great commentary on Panini. As if that weren't enough, Patanjali is also said to be the incarnation of a divine serpent named Ananta. We can, however, be confident that the grammarian Patanjali was not the Patanjali who wrote the Yoga Sutra. Whether either of them was really a snake god is a question for further research. And the confusion with names doesn't stop there. Like other sutra texts, the Yoga Sutra has an authoritative commentary, or Basya, which in this case is ascribed to Vyasa. This too may ring a bell. It's the name of the bard who supposedly wrote or compiled the Mahabharata. But Vyasa here is probably just a generic name for a commentator. In fact, recent philological work by Philip Maas has revealed that the Yoga Sutra and Yoga Basya were probably both written by one and the same author. In other words, Patanjali followed custom by setting down his yoga teaching in sutra form and then immediately provided his own exegesis rather than waiting for other commentators to come along. Mas dates the combined work called the Yoga Shastra to between 325 and 425 AD, which would be long after the grammarian Patanjali, but right around the time at which Ishvara Krishna wrote his Samkhya Karika. This is not a mere historical coincidence. Yoga has an intimate relationship with Samkhya, to the point that scholars sometimes speak of a combined Yoga-Samkhya school, and not without reason. One particular sequence in the Yoga Sutra reads like a summary of ideas we find at greater length in Ishvara Krishna. It explains that when the seer is conjoined to that which is seen, suffering is the inevitable result a clear allusion to the Samkhya idea that suffering can be ended only when we free ourselves from nature, or Prakriti, and identify ourselves with the pure consciousness that is Purusha. 
Patanjali also invokes the dynamic forces called gunas to explain the evolution of things out of the unmanifest principle of prakriti. If we turn from the sutra to the commentary, we see him going even further in the direction of Samkhya, showing how the many elements of its cosmology and psychology could be fitted into the apparently simpler account of the Yoga Sutra. If we assume that the sutra and commentary are really by the same person, then we must conclude that the Samkhya system, in all its complexity, provides the framework for both yoga texts. The sutra simply leaves out a lot, as would be appropriate given its concise and condensed form, reserving the technical details for the commentary. This might make you wonder why we even need to bother with the Yoga Sutra if its philosophical teaching just echoes what we find in the Samkhya Karika. At the very least, the two texts differ in purpose and emphasis. It's common to observe that Samkhya offers theory where Yoga concentrates on practice. The contrast isn't quite so neat as that. Both Samkhya and Yoga emphasize that our goal is the higher knowledge or insight that comes when we discriminate between nature and consciousness, but it is true enough that the Yoga Sutra is more practical in its orientation. Where Ishvara Krishna provides a blueprint of the world and the individual person, Patanjali offers a user's manual. This is true to earlier uses of the terms Samkhya and Yoga, not least in the Bhagavad Gita, which also treats them as complementary strands of thought. We need the practical advice offered in yoga because liberation cannot be achieved just by intellectually understanding the difference between prakriti and purusha. Freeing oneself from nature takes long practice and steady effort. The Sanskrit word we're translating as practice is abhyasa, which literally means repetition. Patanjali makes this the focus of the second chapter of his sutra, explaining the three techniques that make up what he calls action yoga, kriya yoga. First, we should impose ascetic disciplines upon ourselves, deliberately undergoing hunger and thirst and making vows, which might commit us to silence or celibacy. Second, we should repeatedly recite certain words. This is an ancient practice within Vedic culture, which could involve memorized parts of sacred texts, or even just the single syllable Om. Third, we should engage in religious devotion, on which more in a moment. Together, these practices will help to eliminate the sources of affliction, which include desires, the fear of death, and a sense of one's own individual self. Later on in the second chapter, Patanjali adds a further list, itemizing the so-called eight limbs of yoga, which you have to say is eight more limbs than you'd expect from a snake god. They include ethical guidelines, control over posture and breath, withdrawing from the senses and three kinds of meditation. This is the part of the text that corresponds to the ideas we most readily associate with yoga nowadays. The central insight of this second chapter is a rather ironic one. In keeping with Samkhya theory, we are seeking to wean ourselves away from mental and physical engagement, since it binds us to the world of nature. But we can only desist from such action by undertaking other actions. Hence the term action yoga. Through discipline and lengthy practice of both mind and body, we can teach the mind and body to be still, to avoid the tumult of fluctuations that arise as prakriti is transformed by the gunas. It's important to emphasize that the stillness being sought here is indeed mental, not only physical. 
In place of Samkhya's rather complicated analysis of the human mind as consisting of several powers, which together form the so-called interior organ, Patanjali speaks of one simple mental faculty, the chitta. And he goes so far as to define yoga as the cessation of activity within this mind. Again, the Yoga Sutra is perhaps taking a simpler approach than we find in the Samkhya Karika, but the texts are in basic agreement. On another point, though, many scholars have seen a strong contrast. We mentioned just now that the third practice recommended by Patanjali is devotion. Devotion to whom? The answer already comes in the first chapter of the Yoga Sutra, where Patanjali introduces the concept of Ishvara, in other words, God. He recommends that, instead of allowing ourselves to focus on or contemplate the self, we should instead pursue focus and contemplation of God. We saw no such theistic component in the Samkhya Karika. Despite his name, Ishvara Krishna had nothing to say about a deity called Ishvara. Some interpreters have seen this as a fundamental divergence between Samkhya and Yoga. But remember that Samkhya does speak of a divine realm, which suggests that it is, at the very least, open to the existence of divinities. A divine being could simply be a particularly pure version of consciousness, relatively untouched by the turbulence of the natural world. This is, in fact, exactly what we find in the Yoga Sutra. It says that Ishvara is a special sort of Purusha, who is always liberated from the suffering that comes from attachment to nature. Why, though, is it so hard for us to live like God? What prevents someone from reading the Samkhya Karika, realizing that this Ishvara Krishna fellow knows what he's talking about, and just deciding on the spot to be liberated by identifying with Purusha? An intellectualist answer might be that it is one thing to understand the teaching and another to be sincerely convinced by it, but this is not Patanjali's way of seeing things. Instead, he believes that our bondage to Prakriti is perpetuated by powerful habits, which must be gradually subdued. Take my desire for amen croissance. It's all very well for me to realize that so long as I keep wanting to have them, I will have to perform certain activities, enjoying a croissant as I eat it, immediately thereafter starting to wonder when I might get to eat another, worrying that the bakery may be closed next time I'm in the mood for one, and so on. Even if I am convinced that this is going to bring me more suffering than pleasure, that will not just make my affection for almond croissants disappear. My desire is a deep-seated habit or disposition, so I cannot just decide to abandon it. I have to train myself not to want croissants. The training prescribed by Patanjali for this purpose is, of course, the threefold regimen of action yoga. Thus far, we may seem to be dealing with a fairly commonsensical idea about the difficulties of rehabituation. But Patanjali puts a distinctively ancient Indian twist on the process by describing it in terms of the theory of karma. He says that our actions build up so-called karmic deposits, which will bring fruits either in this or the next life. One implication is that each of us was born already burdened with karma from actions in previous lives. All this is more or less familiar from earlier theories of karma. But there's a puzzle lurking. If action causes karma, and karma prevents liberation, why does Patanjali recommend further actions as a means for achieving liberation? This sounds like the sort of fight fire with fire strategy that just leads to a larger conflagration. 
Well, perhaps it isn't actually the action as such that causes karma to build up. Rather, it is the immediate fruits of the action we perform. When I eat an almond croissant, it's not the eating as such, but the resulting pleasure that makes me want to have more croissants in the future. The solution then would be to train myself to disengage from the results of my actions. Tailor-made for this purpose are the ascetic practices recommended in the Yoga Sutra, which obviously involve actions that are not intended to yield enjoyable results. Recitation and devotion would also be activities that direct my attention to something other than my own urges and anxieties. On this reading, Patanjali's advice aligns with the teaching of the Bhagavad Gita. The path to liberation is not complete withdrawal from action of the sort recommended by the Ajivakas, the ones who resorted to the radical strategy of standing still until they starved to death. Instead, we should seek detachment from the fruits of action. If this is right, then the practitioner of yoga would still gradually disengage from the fluctuations of mental life through long and patient practice, but that might not mean disengaging from practical life entirely. Which brings us back to the relationship between yoga and samkhya. We described samkhya as a fundamentally dualist theory, which offers us a choice. Either engage with the phenomenal world that evolved from prakriti, or identify yourself with the pure consciousness that is purusha. And at first, yoga seemed to be equally dualist. But what if there were a way to remain mentally aloof from the world of action, even while continuing to live fully within that world? In that case, the purpose of yoga would not be to help us escape from nature, but to live with it in a way that involves no suffering for oneself or others. This anti-dualist approach to yoga has been put forth by a modern-day interpreter named Ian Witcher. He points out that even in Samkhya, we hear only good things about one of the three gunas that govern cosmic evolution and mental life. Turmoil and despondency are caused by rajas and tamas, the second and third of the gunas, but the first one, sattva, has good connotations. It is light and connected to pleasant feelings. Witcher thus suggests that yoga is a technique for eliminating the states of affliction that are caused by ignorance, desire, and concern for the self, all of them traced to rajas and tamas. This would leave intact the influences of sattva, which lead the person to engage with the world of prakriti in what Witcher calls a non-conflicting and unselfish manner. However, this proposal hasn't been greeted with universal agreement. Some other scholars think that the purpose of yoga is to eliminate all mental activity, even apparently beneficial activity. After all, doesn't Patanjali even define yoga as cessation from all such activity? The debate turns in part on what Patanjali means when he speaks of cessation, or in Sanskrit, niroda. For Witcher, this does not actually mean eliminating or restraining the activity of the mind and body. Instead, he takes it to suggest that the mind remains unaffected even as it is involved in action. The adept of yoga can achieve this so long as she does not confuse her real self with her phenomenal self. The goal is not to be sitting still in a cave or on a mountaintop with a completely empty mind. One can keep living an engaged life so long as one shifts one's perspective on that life by identifying oneself with consciousness rather than the things of which one is conscious. In support of this, Witcher points out that 
If the fulfillment of yoga involved complete disengagement, then it would be hard to explain the fact that yoga gurus are active in teaching their disciples. Some support for this proposal can be found in the description of the divine Ishvara. We are told that he is pure Purusha, living outside of time. Yet Ishvara's very timelessness means that he has always been there, so that he was able to instruct the first adepts of yoga in the long-distant past. This is a puzzling statement in several ways. How can God be a guru or teacher, and how can a timeless being relate to creatures who are subject to time? Patanjali doesn't say. But the little that he does say indicates that Ishvara, at least, can be simultaneously liberated and involved in a form of selfless action that gives rise to no suffering. It only makes sense that we should aspire to do the same. Another clue in the same direction is found in the commentary, where the commentator Vyasa, who, as we saw, is probably really Patanjali himself, is talking about the instruction to eliminate desire and engage in constant practice. The latter is meant to yield a smooth flow in the mind. Again, the goal is apparently to have unconflicted, unattached mental activity that remains untouched by fluctuations of any kind. This is significantly different from banishing activity entirely. This is an alluring picture of the good life. The yoga adept can, as it were, have her almond croissant and eat it too, as long as she remains unaffected as she does so. Whether this is really what Patanjali means is a matter of debate. At the very end of the Yoga Sutra, he certainly sounds like he is recommending total withdrawal from the world of the gunas as he speaks of achieving kaivalya, meaning aloneness. He says that at this stage, karma and change come to an end, that everything in the world of nature has served out its purpose because Purusha has returned to itself. This sounds like more than just a shift in point of view, though it could all just indicate that Purusha is alone in the sense that it sees without being attached to what it is seeing. The same ambiguity arises from other passages. Earlier, Patanjali has defined different stages of meditative contemplation, or samadhi. As we make progress, we may take part in a kind of contemplation that still involves some kind of knowledge, but ultimately what we want is a pure contemplative state that has no object. All karmic burdens have been eliminated and the mind is at peace. Is this because nothing is happening, or because the adept's mind is not changed by what is happening? No yoga class instructor would want us to end with an unresolved tension like this, but that is what we're going to do. We are not, however, done talking about this particular school of Indian thought. To hear more about Patanjali and his place in the intellectual traditions of India, we're going to turn to an expert who was mentioned earlier in the episode, Philip Maas. He has done the most important recent work on the origins and composition of the Yoga Sutra and its accompanying Basya commentary. As Master Yoda might say, a piece of his mind next time he will give us. Here on The History of Philosophy in India. <laughs> 